If someone were to come up to you and say, I've got good news and I've got bad news, what do you normally like to hear first? Just tell me, what do you think? What do you want to hear first? Bad news, yeah. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Not everybody's that way, but a lot of us reason in this way. And the the reason I think that's the case is because we're hoping that the good news that follows cancels out the bad, right? And though at times that happens, that's not always the case. Let me give you a few examples. What if someone were to tell you, I've got good news and I've got bad news? The bad news is, last night during that terrible storm, a tree fell and crushed your brand new car. But the good news is, you finally get that ugly looking tree out of your yard. Doesn't really cancel it out, and I know that hits close to home with some folks. What about this? The bad news is, you're fired. The good news is, you now have plenty of time to travel and go visit family. Doesn't doesn't really cancel it out, does it? How about this one, parents? The bad news is that guy that you don't really care for all that much is dating your daughter. But the good news is she now has a date to the prom. Yeah, doesn't really work, does it? At times, the good news does not outweigh the bad, does it? But sometimes it, it does. We're going to learn this morning that though there is bad news in God's message of salvation, there is also great news, and the great news far outweighs the bad. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our series that we started last week entitled Five Alones. Five Alones. We're taking a break from the series of Acts Someone was joking with me, asking me when we're going to finish Acts. I said in the next two years or so. Whenever we get there, right? But uh, we're taking a little bit of a break from the study through Acts, and we're, we're focusing on this, uh, these doctrines here, the five alones of Christianity. And as many of you know who were with us last week and who have been with us for the past few years in here, October is a special month. For, for us as believers, because this month, at the end of this month, we remember a very important event that happened in Christian history. On October 31st, nearly 500 years ago, in 1517, Martin Luther posted a writing on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, that led to the great Protestant Reformation. And we said last week, that we as believers and we as a church are a product, a a result, an outcome of this great reformation that took place. The reason why we're here this morning with our Bibles in hand, in our own language, in in a translation, we can understand the reason why I encourage you to read and study your Bibles each and every week on your own. And the reason why we gather here to open up God's Word, to look at what God's Word says and pattern our lives after the teachings found in in this book that all comes 
as a result of this great reformation. God did a great work. God is a God of providence who was working in and through these individuals at this time to bring about this great reformation that we remember today. And at this time, there were several key doctrines that were reintroduced by Luther and the other reformers that the church desperately needed to relearn. The church at this time had strayed from the core teachings of Scripture. And so Luther and others like him went back to the Scriptures and they reintroduced these these core teachings that we've been looking at. Last week we looked at Scripture alone. In in Luther's day, there were many competing authorities within the church. There was the authority of those in church leadership. There was the authority of of church traditions. And many of the, the traditions and the practices and the teachings of those in the church at this time, they went counter to Scripture. And so the Reformers said, though there are other authorities, there is only one supreme authority. There is only one divine authority by which these other authorities are to be measured. And that authority is the Word of God. And we still hold to that today. Another key doctrine that was reintroduced at this time that the church had completely lost sight of was the doctrine of grace alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. This is the teaching that salvation comes by God's grace alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Our God saves, period. Don't include anything else with that sentence. Our God saves, We cannot merit salvation. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. The church in Luther's day had drifted from this doctrine. We will learn that many in our day have drifted from it as well. And so we're going to discuss this very important doctrine this morning. And to help us understand this doctrine, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Like I said a moment ago, in this passage, there is some very bad news. We're going to learn that that our situation seems hopeless and helpless when we look at the first part of this passage. The bad news is this. We are a wreck because of sin. We are a wreck because of sin. But though that's the case, Paul ends this passage with the greatest news imaginable. He ends by telling us, though we are a wreck because of sin, he tells us we can be saved by God's grace. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorites in all the Bible, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you were going to write cliff notes for God's gospel, if you were going to summarize God's gospel in less than 300 words, you couldn't do it better than what Paul does it here. So, so let's look at, at the bad news first. And you've already got it up here. We're a wreck because of sin, but it goes deeper than that. We are dead because of sin. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, and you were what? Say it. Dead. Right. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's stop there for a minute. Notice Paul didn't hold back, does he? He doesn't hold back. He comes right out and he gives us the worst news imaginable. He begins this message and this chapter by describing our greatest problem in life. Look at it again, verse 1. Does he say you were hindered by trespasses and sin? Does he say you were sick with sin? He says you were dead. 
dead in trespasses and sin. We have the bad news here. We're dead because of sin. We've said this time and time again here, but it needs to be said again and again and again. Sin is man's greatest problem in life. And it's the great conflict in our story. All of mankind, without exception, all of mankind is dead because of sin. Now, what does Paul mean when he says dead here? Some people hear this verse of Scripture and they argue with it. They say, I'm not dead. You know, that's not true of me. Though I'm not trusting in Christ for salvation, I'm very much alive. I I choose, I speak, I will, I do. I'm not dead. Well, Paul's not talking about death in a physical sense, though physical death is a result from the fall. But he's talking here about spiritual death. You see, life is all about living in relationship with God. So if you're not living in relationship with Him, if you're not right with Him, you're not truly living. You're not. Apart from God, there is no true life. That's Paul's point. So you could be living and breathing and doing what you want and choosing what you want, but if you are not in right relationship with God, you're not truly living. And get this, though Paul talks about death in a spiritual sense, there are comparisons to be made between the two, between physical death and spiritual death. For example, in physical death, one is unable to respond in a physical way, no matter the incentive. When you are physically dead, you are dead. You do not respond. You don't. Not even the the tears and the cries of your closest loved ones can bring you back from physical death. Spiritual death is similar. When one is dead to God, they're in a fixed state with an inability to respond willfully. And and notice how, how Paul says it here. We believers were dead in both trespasses and in sins. What do those words mean? We hear them a lot, right? Scripture, trespasses and sins. What do they mean? Well, the word trespass refers to making a misstep or a false step to be headed in the wrong direction. And the word sin has to do with missing the mark completely. Now, some have taken these words to mean that we can get close. When they think about making a false step or missing the mark, they think we can get close to what God wants, and maybe there's even some corrections that can be made by us to get us back on track with God through our own personal effort and devotion. But that's not what Paul is is talking about here. He's not talking about just being a smidge off. We're not just a smidge off. Like we hit the ring around the bullseye, but not the bullseye. That's not what Paul's saying. The word trespasses and sin in this context mean we are completely off. We are headed in a completely different direction. We're playing on a completely different field. We have our sights set on a completely different target. Paul's point here, and he makes this elsewhere as well, we have all failed to measure up in any way to the demands that have been placed upon us by God. We have failed to live the life that God has called us to live. We've failed to measure up. We have missed the mark completely. What is the mark? Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. That's a great definition of sin. Sin is failing to glorify God. We have all missed this target. 
And, and notice something else that's interesting. You know, when we define sin, when we talk about sin, we often talk about the bad things in which we do. Sin is lying and cheating and stealing. We define sin as the bad things that we do. But get this, though that is sin, sin has as much to do with what we don't do as it does what we do. Sin has everything to do with what we fail to do. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect, perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus says what brings glory to God is a righteous life, a sinless life, a life that is solely devoted to God. Now, let me ask you, according to that mark, anybody there? Where are you when it comes to perfection? Yeah, we've not done this. We've missed perfection by a million miles and more. That's what Paul means when he says we're dead in trespasses and sin. Listen to 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. We're called to be holy. In the world, not of the world, completely set apart, sold out for God. Folks, we've missed holiness by a million miles and more this Two is what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. God calls for us to be holy. He calls for us to be perfect. He calls for us to live for him and for his glory. That is the target, and that is where we miss the mark. That's where we fall short. We miss it completely. Now, there are differing degrees to this. Now, I would agree with someone who says there's different levels of depravity when looking at your unbelieving neighbor and looking at a serial killer. I agree with that. Just like if you were to look at several different dead corpses, you would see varying levels of decay. But get this. doesn't change the fact that they're all dead. They're all dead. Let's, let's think about it in this way. If we were to stand on the shore of the Atlantic Ocean and jump off the shore into the water, all of us are hitting the water, aren't we? We may hit the water at different points, but no one jumping is going to scale it, right? And land on dry land on the other side. Same is true in a spiritual sense. It doesn't matter the effort one puts in. No one is getting to perfection through personal effort and devotion. Anyone who has ever tried has fallen infinitely short. And so you see here, sin is not just what you do, but it's what you don't do. It's what you fail to do. Some people say, well, so-and-so is a good person. They have good morals. They're devoted to their spouse and their kids they put others before themselves they're better than most that's great but you know what the problem is they're not perfect they're not perfect and if they're not living in fellowship with God if they have not exchanged their sin for Christ's righteous life if they're going at life on their own and they're trying to carve out their own way They may make a valiant effort in their jump to perfection, but they still land in a sea of sin. They miss the mark by a million miles and then some. They're dead in sin. Some of you are thinking, okay, Graham, we get it, you know? Hammering us this morning. Why belabor this point? Because God belabors it in his word. I mean, there is hardly a place you can turn to in the Bible where sin is not the focus. 
And the reason why is because it's man's greatest problem. And it is the bad news in our story and in God's gospel story, which is why Paul continues by focusing on it in verses 2 through 4. Notice he explains a bit further what we are like before salvation as believers. He says, we walked with the world. That's the, that's the next uh, point here, the first point. He's giving examples here. We walked with the world. Look at verse 2. Paul says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, notice here, Paul reminds us that the conflict in God's story, in our story, it precedes us, right? When we came into the world, the world was, had already gone south. It was heading further south, right? The, our story was already messed up before we even started. I, I mean, the story was already messed up. We entered into this story that was already marked with conflict. The conflict began early on. It began toward the beginning. We learn in Genesis 1 and 2, man had a very good beginning, right? It's created in God's image, both male and female, we're told, in the image of God without sin and right relationship with God. But it didn't take long for all of that to get messed up. Just three chapters in, we learn that man rebels, sin enters into the world, ruins and wrecks God's perfect creation, and everyone who has come after Adam and Eve has followed this pattern of sin and rebellion against God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they have passed this sin problem on to everyone else. And as a result, every one of us enter into this world with our hearts set on repeating the sin of Adam and living life apart from and opposed to God, that is the way of the world or the course of this world, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.2. So the first characteristic of an unbeliever that Paul gives here is that they follow the course of this world. They walk in rebellion against God. They repeat the sin of Adam. They reject God's rule and reign, and they go at life on their own. And we see this all the time, don't we? You just go outside your house or stay in. <laughs> Stay in and notice it, right? Look within yourself. But everywhere we turn, we see men and women going in life on their own, doing what they want to do, doing what makes them feel right, doing what's right in their own eyes. That's following the course of this world. Paul says to the believers in his day, to us today, you once walked in this way, believers. This is how you were before salvation, and we still struggle with that today don't we second paul says not only do we walk in accordance with the world but we walked with the enemy look at verse two following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience the prince of the power of the air here is a reference to satan in god's story we learn that before people rebelled against god Angels rebelled against God. Angels are created beings as well, and some of them, we learn, rebelled against God. And one of them was Satan. Satan was an angel of God who has led, is leading, and will lead a spiritual rebellion against God. And we know that his influence is real. We see him mentioned at specific points in God's story of redemption. Notice this. We see him at the garden, right, with Adam and Eve. We also see him when Christ is being tempted in the wilderness. He enters into Judas, 
the one who betrays Jesus. He's, he's all over God's story at these key points in time. And we're told that he is going to continue to fight against God until the end when he meets his end. So we have a real spiritual enemy in Satan and we know that he plays a pivotal role in our struggle as well. He was there in the beginning with man and woman in the garden. Now, let me say this, both Adam and Eve wanted to eat that fruit. They wanted to rebel. They were attracted to it. We're told the fruit was a delight to Eve's eyes, but Satan was there, twisting God's word and tempting her to question God's goodness. So Satan plays a key role in deceiving them and leading them into sin. And his evil influences are seen and felt today, aren't they? And that's, that's bad news. Now, once again, he's not the sole cause for our sin, right? We often want to place all the blame on him. The devil made me do it and not take any of the blame. We're responsible. Scripture is clear. But he, he plays a part. And he's behind a lot of the influences that we see in our world today. And he tempts us to step out on our own apart from God, question his word, doubt his goodness. This originated with Satan. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the devil has been sinning since the beginning. He has been in rebellion against God for a long time, long before any of us. And Paul says prior to salvation, we walked with him in sin. We were enticed by him. We were influenced by him. We sided with him and against God. So we walked with the world. We walked with the enemy. Third, we walked in the flesh. That's the third point. We walked in the flesh. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen, the reason why we are so quick to follow the course of this world, the reason why we are so influenced by the prince of the power of the air is because we're not right within us. Our hearts aren't right. We, deep down, we, we want to rebel. We do. I tell this to our girls a lot. I say, the reason why you hit your sister, the reason why you said that hateful thing to them, they might have done something to bring that out of you, but you know what Jesus says? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What came out of you was in you. Now, that's hard for us to hear, but it's the truth. And out of the overflow of the heart, the hands and the feet, they do. Our hearts are what the issue is, and our hearts need to be changed. And folks, till we come to this understanding and, and repent of our sin and give our life over to God and allow the Spirit of God to take up residence in our life and change our hearts from the inside out, listen, the passions of our flesh are set on rebellion. They're set on sinning against God. We're not inherently Good, which is what the world teaches us. We're not even neutral when it comes to sin. The passions of our flesh, the desires of our bodies and minds, they're set on evil. And just think about it. You know it to be true, don't you? Some believe man's inherently good, just forgetful. They do. They believe we mean well, just sometimes we're careless. Others believe that we're neutral when it comes to sin. The problem is Satan and his demons are convincing. 
That sounds good. There's only one problem with that, and that's the Bible. The Bible teaches otherwise. You know what Paul tells us? You know what God tells us through Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? Without Christ, we're dead. We're dead spiritually. Though we have influences, evil influences all around us in, in our world and beyond in the spiritual realm, Scripture is clear that there's nothing good in us apart from God. You know who said that? Paul said that. Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, Satan is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Is that what he says? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are sinful people. We have this desire within us to go at life on our own and live for ourselves. And though the world and the enemy play a part in that, all the world and the enemy does is just bring out of us what was in us, in our hearts. And because this is the case, notice the, the consequences. It goes from bad to worse. Paul says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul tells us here that there are consequences for those who are dead in sin. He, he tells us that those whose sins have not been covered, those who do not belong to God, they are under God's wrath. Scripture is clear that, that God's wrath is set against any and everyone who is opposed to him and who do not belong to him. You see, God necessarily hates sin because he's righteous. And sin is that which is opposed to his righteousness. Therefore, God is opposed to sin because it's opposed to him, the God who's righteous. Now, herein lies the problem with us. We're sinners, Right? what we've been talking about in verses 1 through 4. Therefore, God's wrath is set against us, and rightfully so. Notice what else Paul says. He says, this is not just an outward activity of ours. This is not just a, a bad habit we need to break. He says, by nature, we are children of wrath. In other words, like we said earlier, we are born into this problem. We are conceived in sin, as David says. The problem is in our bloodstream. It goes deeper than that. It's in our, it's in our DNA. It even goes deeper than that. We're, we're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners by nature, children of wrath. This is an issue that has infected everyone. Paul says you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us. All people, without exception, are born with this problem. We're, we're dead in sin. We follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and live in the passions of our flesh, and we carry out the desires of the body and mind, and we are all, by nature, at our core, children of wrath. Ouch! That is some bad news, isn't it? That is bad news! You, me, us, if we're left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. But praise be to God that Paul didn't stop there. He doesn't leave us with that bad news. He gives us good news. And get this, the good news far outweighs the bad. Here it is. You ready for it? 
Though we're dead because of sin, the good news is we are saved because of God. Look at verse 4 and 5. But God, I love that. Stop there for a minute, camp out on that. Notice this passage begins with and you, and then it gives the bad news. And you, boom, boom, boom. You're, you're, you're sinners, you're dead in sin, and all of those consequences that come with it. And you, and then he says, but God. Now he's going to give the good news, the best news in the world. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Folks, we did absolutely, positively nothing to merit salvation. Don't believe me, just reread verses 1 through 3. There's nothing good said about us in this passage. Like it or not, it's true. We did nothing to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. The only contribution is our sin. That makes us in need of being saved. We bring nothing of worth to the table, yet though that's the case, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us even when we were dead spiritually has made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, we have been saved. We bring nothing to the table. We do nothing. God brings everything. God does everything. That is the doctrine of grace alone. We are opposed to God in any and every way, and our sinful condition was permanent. It was was fixed and unchanging, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive in Christ. This is what Scripture teaches. Now, in Luther's day, Though the the church taught that people were sinners in need of salvation, and that salvation was a work that God does, they also taught that we're to work alongside that, alongside God in that way. It's faith plus good works that lead to our salvation. Those in the the, the church at this time, they, they said, we're saved by faith, but our faith is not alone. It's our faith plus works through performing certain tasks one can be restored to God and once again be in right standing with him and Luther even carried out some of these so-called works of satisfaction that's what they called them in that day he performed some of those works of satisfaction but he found them very unsatisfying And it was not until he started to study and teach from the Bible that he came to understand that God's word tells us we're dead in sin. We are dead spiritually, enemies of God, and there is nothing we can do about it. Luther came to this realization by studying passages like the one we've been studying this morning in Ephesians 2. But he also learned, though we are dead in sin, God is rich in mercy. And because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in sin, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. This is what we mean, folks, when we talk about grace alone. This doctrine tells us that we are a wreck because of sin. We are dead in sin. Yet though that's the case, we are saved by God, by his grace alone. Alone. Now, how does this apply to us today? Why, why did we spend all this time this morning discussing this doctrine? I mean, this might have been an issue for those in Paul's day. 
This might have been an issue for those in Luther's day in the 1500s, but not today, right? Listen, there are many in our world today who, though they might say man is sinful, they argue he's simply sick with sin or hindered by sin, not dead in sin. Many believe that there are things that can be done by us. There are things that we bring to the table when it comes to salvation. There are many reasons in this way. They, they say, I'm trying my best to be good. Surely that counts for something. God's word says it counts for nothing. It counts for, for nothing. Our message should be the same as Paul's in Ephesians 2 and Martin Luther's in 1517. We're saved by grace alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. That's the gospel. That's what God teaches us in his word. Maybe you're here this morning for the first time in your life, truly been made aware of your sinfulness and your need. Listen. Though this passage is, is written in the past tense because Paul is writing to the Christians of his day and he's reminding them of who they are in Jesus. Listen, if you're not a Christian, if you have not turned from your sin and made Christ the Lord of your life, if you're not trusting in him alone for salvation, listen, this passage is not your past, it's your present. You with me? This is where you are right now without Jesus. If you've yet to give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus, you are dead in trespasses and sin. You are following the course of this world. You're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience is at work in you. You're living by the passions of your flesh. You're carrying out the desires of your body and mind and you are by nature a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you are without Jesus. And if left to yourself, you'll remain in that state without a hope in the world. Be honest with me for just a moment. That's terrible news, isn't it? It is. Like we said at the beginning, though there's bad news, though there's great conflict in God's story, there's great resolve. You can move from darkness to light, from death to life today if you would just turn your life up and over to the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin Trust in Jesus alone for your salvation and be saved. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would this morning. Would you pray with me?